You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Here are the arguments of the United States versus Richard Nixon in front of the Supreme Court, part three. Now I'd like to move, if I may, to briefly uh, the suggestion that the issue here is non-justiciable on the grounds other than I've already mentioned, namely the context in which this case unfortunately now finds itself. It seems to us briefly that the case is non-justiciable for uh, somewhat more technical reasons. First, uh, this is an issue where a someone has to exercise some discretion. There are no real bounds or standards by which that discretion should be exercised. And by traditional standards of this court, where that exists, then this court ought not to take the case. Secondly, secondly, it seems to me there is a textual constitutional grant if we assume that the grant of executive power includes the means by which that can be effectively exercised. Second ground. Third, of course, there is the political involvement which I have suggested. Therefore, I suggest uh, quite quite uh, briefly that even uh, even if there is subject matter jurisdiction, the case is non-justiciable for these additional reasons. Uh, the standards of Baker and Carr Powell are not applicable here. There's no individual's rights who are being protected against the onslaught of government. The president is not here as an individual. He's here as a constitutional officer in whom the executive power is vested. There is no uh, philosophy that would support a finding of justiciability on the grounds that we're strengthening the uh, democratic process, as was true in Powell and uh, also to a greater extent in Baker and Carr. If anything, a decision in this case against the president would tend to diminish the democratic process. This president was elected on the theory that he would have all the powers, duties, and responsibilities of any other president. And if it's determined that he doesn't, there is a certain amount of diminution of the uh, uh, political aspect of the case insofar as the constituents who voted for him are concerned. This president ought not to have any less powers than any other president ought to have. And one of the uh, necessary results, as I view it, and my brother's argument is that because of the circumstances of this case, Richard Nixon is, let's say, an 85% president, not a 100% president. And that can't be constitutionally. The framers of the Constitution had in mind a strong presidency. As we know, they considered a number of alternatives, maybe a, a presidency consisting of three members. All of those suggestions were discarded, and a strong presidency was decided upon, may I say, to the distinct advantage of this country as history has developed. 
Now, by reason of an action of a grand jury, the special prosecutor suggests that this president has something less than any other president would have. I would only call your attention to the action of the framers in the Constitutional Convention when the issue was raised as to whether or not a president who was under impeachment should be suspended during the pendency of the impeachment proceedings. And the decision was definitely he should not because the framers in, envisioned a strong, active president even in the course of impeachment proceedings. They did not want this country to be led by someone who didn't have those full powers even if he were then under impeachment. And indeed this president continues to function as president as he should even though there are impeachment inquiries underway. Mr. Sinclair, if I may interrupt you again, is this, is what you're telling us now directed to your point that this is a uh, non-justiciable political question, or is it directed to your point that the that executive privilege is absolute and that the determination of it is to made, be made? I think it, it, it involves both. Uh, it's non-justiciable, if I may, because it does involve the court in a political matter. Now, the mere fact that politics is involved, of course, has not prevented the court from taking action in appropriate cases where individual rights are involved or where the franchise of voters uh, could be strengthened by a decision in the court. I'm suggesting in this case the converse is true. Therefore, uh, the justification between uh, in Baker and Carr and in uh, uh, the Powell case is not available or not applicable here. Furthermore, however, the argument still, in my view, has force with respect to the consequences of the grand jury action in uh, naming him as a co-conspirator, which we suggest they were uh, not qualified to do. The president is not above the law by any means, but the law as to the president has to be applied in a constitutional way which is different than anyone else. Namely, we suggest that he can only be impeached while in office and cannot be indicted until such time as he no longer is in office. Well, let's assume we accept that proposition, what follows from it. Well, then the naming of the president by a grand jury as a co-conspirator, if that has the effect of diminishing the president's rights, it's a pro tanto, if I may say, uh, impeachment. I should think you could run the argument the other way, saying that since... Uh the president cannot be indicted, then all that can happen to him is that he be, can be named as an unindicted co-conspirator. That could be said, but by the naming him of an unindicted co-conspirator, we suggest, is an intrusion by the grand jury on a function that is solely legislative and not judicial. Well, the president could be, a president could be sued, could we, or back taxes, or penalties, or whatnot. Well, in questions of uh, immunity, I think uh, individually he could be... He speaks of persons, any person. That's correct. I think the president could be sued for back taxes uh, in his individual capacity. But in terms of his power to uh, affect the responsibilities of his office, to protect the presidency from unwarranted intrusions into the confidentiality of his communications, that's not a personal matter. It may be, and one of these defendants might, might be completely exonerated. 
for something in one of those tapes. As I've suggested, that if that defendant will satisfy a court that there is such a tape and will identify it or even come close to it and, and persuade a court that that would exonerate him or there's reason to believe it might, I don't believe we'll have a question. But that's not what my brother here is asking for. He's asking for a set number of tapes, not for Brady purposes, although he throws that in, but he really wants them, he says, for prosecution. And I'd like to review with the court the question of the necessity shown for this, because even on his theory of a qualified privilege, there has to be a showing of some necessity. Now, we should understand, I'm sure the court knows, that all of these individuals here involved have testified before the Senate Select Committee, with the exception, I believe, of Mr. Colson, who now has pled guilty under a plea bargain where he's agreed to cooperate, so the special prosecutor has the full benefit of his testimony. They have testified on one or more occasions before a grand jury. In addition, the president has furnished to the special prosecutor the transcripts and tapes of the critical conversations involved in this alleged conspiracy. And I might review those very briefly with you. Mr. Dean, in his Senate committee testimony, suggested that on September the 15th, the president acknowledged uh, knowledge of a cover-up. He changed that later to uh, testimony that he believed that was so, or it was an inference. But in any event, the president furnished that portion of that tape of the conversation with Mr. Dean. Mr. Dean also testified that on March the 13th, 1973, he discussed the cover-up with the president and efforts to blackmail the president by one of the defendants who broke into the Democratic National Headquarters. Later, it developed that that was mistaken, that it was actually on March the 21st, and the grand jury indictment proceeds on the theory of March the 21st. The tape of the conversation on March the 13th was furnished. All of the conversations between the principals being two in number on March the 21st were furnished. The conversation between the individuals and the president on the next day in the afternoon, March the 22nd, was furnished. And a large number of additional conversations were furnished. Now, if Reynolds means anything, and Reynolds, in addition to the Kaiser Aluminum case, noted a constitutional question, as I think uh, uh, one of the learned justices suggested, one of the reasons for not facing that issue in that case was it was not necessary because in the case there was a, a crash of a bomber that was on a secret mission, and the court said that the uh, parties had the testimony of the witnesses, the survivors, and other testimony. So it wasn't necessary to get to the constitutional question. I suggest that that's true here. It's difficult for me to conceive a prosecutor who has more evidence than this prosecutor has. He has the full benefit of a Senate Select Committee investigation, which staff had 50-odd lawyers, existed for a year. He has the benefit of his own investigation of a grand jury that sat for 19 months with an investigative staff of similar proportions. He simply says, I need this because I want to present all of the evidence in the case. He does not say You suggest then that even if he could, the prosecutor could get this from a normal third party witness, he can't get it from the president. 
because of executive privilege, that there must be a further showing beyond the relevance showing of 17C. Well, as we point out in our brief, a tape of a conversation is very wrong. Well, your answer is yes, isn't yes. it? Uh, yes. that, you're, uh, that there is a further showing necessary. That's right. Does he really need this? What does he say he needs it for? But how, says, does a, how does a district court go about uh, deciding a question like that uh, in advance of trial without, unless the prosecutor uh, uh, lays out his entire evidence and says, uh, it's my judgment that this is evidence. Without this evidence, I might lose the case. He doesn't say that. He made a showing to the court below. The showing is available to you here. But you would suggest that he would have to do that. Like he has the burden. Happen? He has the burden under Reynolds, under Kaiser Aluminum, and so forth, to show that he needs it. And what does he say he needed for? He doesn't say he needs it to obtain conviction. Well, I'm going to say that while I've got you interrupted, I want to make, ask you something else. Yes, sir. Uh, and it's related to this. Uh, no matter how absolute uh, the executive privilege is that you claim on behalf of the president, I assume you're talking about conversations to which the privilege would apply. Yes. Now, is it... We have to make such a showing, and I say that's our only burden. Uh, you wouldn't suggest that every conversation the president has uh, while he's in office would be subject to executive privilege? No, it has to be a confidential communication. Well, it has to be in the course of his duties as president. Yes, but it's... Uh, president Carrying is... out his duties as president, uh, as an art, as... as a, under the Constitution. Yes, sir. Now, I don't suppose if he was talking with one of his aides, uh, uh, Mr. Holden and Mr. Ehrlichman, about an investment of his out in California or some, some other place. Or a tennis game or whatever. Yes, uh, you wouldn't uh, suggest that. Uh, and my brother doesn't suggest that's what he wants either. Well, uh, how about conversations about a campaign, about the next campaign? Now, that's hard that gets a little close, a little closer. Well, it's very uh, close to it. It the very president close. is a political office, too. Well, it isn't very close to, to uh, executing the laws of the United States and running a political campaign. I don't think it's very close, no. And so and I don't think conversations about that something. My brother isn't seeking any such conversation. Well, I know, but shouldn't you, uh, shouldn't the president have to say, at least, even if the privilege is as absolute as you say it is, shouldn't he at least have to say, I, I believe uh, or assert that the executive privilege applies to this state because this conversation is in the, the course of the performance of his duties as president? Well, as I, as I read some of you the cases... You haven't done that either, have you? We, we have not done that. We've simply responded to an assertion that these all relate to Watergate. Assuming that to be the fact. Would you automatically say every conversation about Watergate is in the course of the performance of the duties of the President of the United States? I would think it would be, yes, sir. Why is that? Because he had, has the duty, A, to enforce the laws, that is to prosecute these cases, and B, he had to take care to see that the laws are enforced, that is to investigate them. And much of this material does relate to the investigation, as 1,200 and some pages of the public transcript fully discloses. But I would be ready to concede, and I don't think it's a difficult problem between us, that the President should show that the uh, circumstances are appropriate for the claim of such a privilege. And I think such language uh, appears in Mink and uh, perhaps even in uh, Reynolds and in uh, Kaiser Aluminum. Simply, it has to be a confidential communication, first of all. 
And how about uh, do you do you concede or or do you what is your view of the privilege with respect to whether it reaches uh, factual assertions in a conversation? The difference that was made in the Mink case and in others with respect to uh, uh, opinions and judgments well, uh, as uh, uh, as distinguished from facts. Of course, Mink uh, I believe was a. Statutory case. Statutory case. Well, that was one of the exceptions. Well, what is your view? Uh, uh, would you say that if a conversation is merely a recitation of fact, it is still covered by executive privilege? Yes, it is. If it's confidential and it's between the president and some advisor with respect to him, because well, otherwise... That hasn't got much to do with the decision-making process, just pure cold facts. It might well have to do with the decision-making process if the facts are such as were developed in the course of an investigation with regard to the existence of a uh, obstruction of justice charge, much of which the president was involved in. But uh, the fact against opinion decisions really relate to a another situation, as I suggest in the, uh, uh, the statute. But the, con the conversation that the president has with his advisors, we suggest, is absolutely privileged. It's a discretionary matter that he has to exercise and what he's going to release and not release. And since Marbury and Madison, Mississippi and Johnson, it's been clear that the courts will not direct a president to exercise his discretion in any manner. This is not to say that the courts won't strike down as in Sawyer excessive uh, uh, action on the part of the president or excessive action on the part of the legislature. That has happened a number of times. But it's a far different thing to suggest that the court should undertake to direct the president to exercise his discretion in a certain manner. It's not a ministerial duty by any means. It's a matter of discretion. There are some things he feels he properly should, under the circumstances, make available, and others he shouldn't. One here involves the relevancy of materials to a criminal crime. And that normally has been a part of the judicial power under Article 3, not the executive power. Uh, I'd like to discuss very briefly Gravel, if I may, for example. I think this raises a very important question. There is, of course, an explicit uh, speech and debate immunity provided in the Constitution. As our brief indicates, the reason for this is quite clear. It's to protect the legislature from uh, unwarranted invasion from the executive and perhaps even the judicial. does not mean that the executive is not entitled to substantially the same thing by implication. And at least in the civil field, as we've pointed out, the courts have worked out by implication as a necessary ingredient to the function of the, of the duties of the executive an absolute immunity from civil liability for actions taken within the sphere of the official. Uh, Spalling and Vilas, I guess, is the leading case, uh, cited uh, Barr and Mateo and other cases. If such a matter can be worked out with respect to the executive on civil matters, we suggest there is no reason why, and in fact the court should spell out a similar exemption in criminal matters, especially as they relate to the president himself, because while I said the president is not above the law, the law can only be made applicable to him in a certain way while he is in office. Now, if a junior congressman can commit a crime on the floor of the House as apparently as possible, 
under Gravel and Johnson. Is it to be said that the President of the United States has less immunity than a junior congressman? I think not. So that I suggest to you that common sense and, uh, and uh, proper construction of the Constitution, implying within the exec grant of executive power all of those necessary ingredients to make it work to be effective, which would include immunity and criminal immunity, the President, we suggest, cannot be indicted, can't even be named as a co-conspirator because that's an assumption of a legislative function under the Constitution. And therefore, we suggest that even if this is criminal, the President is immune from the ordinary criminal process. He's not immune from process. But that process that's available to the President is a process of impeachment, which does not include the function of the judiciary branch. And therefore, we say that if, under Gravel, a congressman is entitled to immunity even from criminal conduct for actions taken within the legislative sphere of his, sphere of his conduct, then it would be very hard to support a proposition that the president, as the chief executive of the country, is entitled to less. Except they didn't put him in the Constitution. Right, and the reason they didn't, sir, was it was not found to be necessary. They didn't put civil immunity in the Constitution either for the executive branch, and this court has found, of course, that there is such immunity. I'm sorry, sir. It was a speech and debate clause case, and it, it, it even forbade, as I understand the Gravel case, grand jury inquiry into motivations and actions of the senator and his aide. Because the Constitution said so. Right, and I suggest the Constitution, by clear implication, provides the same not only for the executive but for the judicial as well. But and certainly for the executive. And if we can't find it in the Constitution, what happens to your argument? Well, I would suggest you should find it in the Constitution. It need not be explicit. It can well be implied. The question is, if we can't find it, what happens to your argument? If you cannot find it. Yes, sir. Then, if Your Honor, please, that portion of the argument is lost as far as this court's concerned, I guess. Don't you, don't you, you haven't lost your other point, which is this court can set up the same kind of privilege that they've set up in other ones. That's correct. And we're suggesting that it should in this case. Not necessarily because a great deal is now left to be gained by expunging the grand jury action. My brother is right. The damage has been done and I, we think quite improperly so. We think the tactics involved with the prosecutor in seeking to in, in, make enlarging the, uh, the scope of admissible testimony is hardly worth what has been done here, but it's been done. But it seems to me history would be served by granting of the relief we have prayed for below, namely to expunge this. Secondly, it seems to me the American people would feel better about the fairness of the issues now pending before the House if this act, which we say was improper and illegal, were expunged. But insofar as the mechanisms of this case are concerned, it destroys or removes a basis upon which they contend they are entitled to these documents. And I'd like to address that for a moment. We've been asked many times to do that in other cases respecting grand juries. Up to now, I don't think we've ever come near, anywhere near to it. And up to today, you've never had a president of the United States named as a co-conspirator either, sir. That's very true. And the president of the United States... 
I don't mean to be facetious about it, but the President of the United States, we suggest, can be preceded against only by impeachment while in office. And his powers are unabated until such time as he leaves that office. Now, with respect to this suggestion that a grand jury finding is prima facie evidence... That, of course, has never been decided either. No. This case is unusual in many respects. Uh, this suggestion that a grand jury finding is prima facie evidence, and therefore... Uh, the president has lost whatever privilege he otherwise would have had. Just it doesn't isn't borne out by the, the either the facts or the legal issues uh, and principles involved. A grand jury finding is not prima facie evidence. Even if it's mentioned in an opening argument in a criminal trial, there's a, a grave risk of a mistrial. The cases cited by my brother, particularly the Clark case are clearly cases which require a showing in court, or in Clark, a showing to the judge that there was prima facie evidence of wrongdoing. You may recall that's a case involving an investigation into uh, a juror as to whether or not the juror had performed properly. And the juror, it had been shown, had testified falsely in the qualifications that she had never had any uh, business relations with one of the parties, when in fact she had. The court said, well, there's a finding of wrongdoing, and based on that, now I will look into the juror's deliberations to see what she did. But uh, Justice Cardozo made it very clear that if he hadn't been able to make a prima facie showing of wrongdoing by evidence before him, there would have been no cause for letting in the light, as he put it. And the Ewing case and other cases, which are relied on by my brothers, are all cases where there was a prima facie showing in a courtroom. Now, a grand jury charge is not prima facie. In the first place, it's only accusatory. It's not even admissible in, nor can it be referred to in a trial. Secondly, it, is, it can well involve incompetent evidence, as this court recently decided, and it's totally inappropriate to suggest that a president who otherwise would have a very valuable privilege, and I think I should emphasize the value of this privilege, because it is a valuable privilege. All you have to do is read Justice Reed's decision in Kaiser Aluminum, and he spells it out quite clearly, the importance and value of this privilege. To simply say to have a grand jury make a charge that destroys that privilege uh, is an argument that I don't think can be sustained. Mr. St. Clair, you have not mentioned uh, in your argument uh, a few moments ago on the question uh, of the absence of any provision for immunity for judges uh, or the presidents. The government mentioned the holding of this court in Pearson against Ray, where, as I recall it, the, the court assumed with a sentence or two that there was absolute privilege uh, for the judiciary, but that the privileges of the executive, in that case, uh, policemen, was qualified. The court had no difficulty in concluding that uh, it, did, it did not require an express constitutional provision to, uh, to spell out uh, an absolute uh, privilege for judges. These were state judges in that That's case, right. of course. Well, uh, if, you're, if Your Honor, please, uh, I don't believe that simply because the Constitution does not explicitly state the immunity, as it does in the Speech and Debate Clause, should this court hold it does not exist in criminal matters. 
I would like to make one point with the court, however, because I'm sure the point will be raised concerning Justice Kerner, for example. There's a distinct difference, as we point out in our reply brief as we view it, between a president of the United States, a single individual in whom the entire executive function is vested. A president serves seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And only he, or those under him, performing his function, can exercise the executive function of our government. Now, if a congressman, or a senator, or even if a judge, or a vice president, or a vice president, is removed from his duties, matters go on. But a president doesn't have that opportunity to take a vacation. It's vested in one individual and deliberately so. This is pretty far afield from the basic question here, which is the testimonial privilege. We say it's a constitutional not, not, privilege. Not prosecutorial immunity, but for testimonial privilege is what we're dealing with here. That's correct. Yeah. I think so. Uh, I would I want to make the point with you that we think that the privilege we're, we're arguing for is both common law and constitutional. I understand. It's constitutional because it's inherent in the executive power. I understand your argument. But that, and it's common law because matter, it's all whether or not uh, they can, uh, a judge can be prosecuted criminally or it's... it's, it's it has to do has with the question of immunity. testimonial privilege, does it? Well, my brothers seem to think it does because they say because of the implications of criminality here, the president has lost something he otherwise would well, not have had. I understand. May I, since I've already interrupted you, may I please to rail upon your good nature a little more, Mr. St. Clair, to ask you uh, uh, whether it is your claim that any of these uh, materials have to do with what have sometimes been called uh, matters of state, i.e. matters of international relations or national defense. Uh, Mr. Jaworski assured us uh, that they did not involve matters of state, but I would like to hear what you have to say about that, because as you well know, both the commentators and uh, court decisions have uh, made a, dichot a dichotomy between uh, the privilege that exists with respect to ordinary general confidentiality on the one hand of the executive and matters of state on the other, to which a higher privilege has sometimes been thought to be accorded. Well, I think if a higher privilege has been accorded, it should not, but in any event, the privilege of confidentiality is not unimportant. However, let me, let me direct myself to, your, to uh, your question. The answer to your question is no one knows. But you... You won't know until you listen to these tapes as to what subjects are discussed. My brother can only state that it's probable they relate, at least in part, to whatever he says, Watergate. Mm. Or it's likely that it might. And I've had the experience, for example, where circumstances were such that the House Committee felt that it was likely that a conversation took place between uh, the Attorney General, Mr. Mitchell, and the President regarding uh, plans for surveillance of the Dem of Democratic Party. When you looked at the conversation, it wasn't there at all. But in this case... So I have no way of knowing, nor does the prosecutor know, what additional matters may be interwoven into these conversations. I'm One thing is certain. believing, Mr. St. Clair, and understanding, Mr. St. Clair, that in this case, to date, uh, no representation has been made by affidavit or professional representation or otherwise that any of these materials have to do with national defense or international relations. 
No, and no uh, representation could be made to the contrary no. either. And that would be, therefore, a matter to be uh, uh, under the existing order, now under review of Judge Sirica, that would be submitted to him uh, uh, later uh, in camera. If this right. court, if this court finds, I say under his existing orders. Yes, yes that's right. Right, and the president presumably, uh, uh, if he were to comply with that order, would make such a representation in an appropriate case. But the fundamental point is that we believe, for the reasons stated, that the president's right to confidential advice is important, and it's actually fundamental to the proper functioning of his government. And in many instances, I suggest, is even more important than military matters and matters of state, so to speak. Because no matter what the conversation is, of course, it's the thought that it might become public that involves then this chilling effect that we've made reference to in our brief under the First Amendment, but as a practical matter. And I can see it myself. The communications uh, are not free and open because... Who is to say that it won't be called before a grand jury? And most everyone in the White House has been called before a grand jury, sometimes several times. The FBI has interviewed every secretary that had any knowledge of any aspect of this case. This prosecutor has a plethora of information. He says he wants to try this case with all the evidence. Well, he knows better than that. Nobody tries any case with all the evidence. You'd be buried in minutia. You select the evidence that you think most appropriate to your case. You don't try it with all the evidence. And this special prosecutor has mountains of Who information. Who determine how much evidence a prosecutor needs? Only the prosecutor. Don't That's correct. Agree? That's correct. Not the court. Don't and if that if that uh, if that evidence constitutes presidential confidential communications, then I suggest, if your honor please. Many the president case, determines many that. Many cases have been lost because the prosecutor had too much evidence. Well, I suggest that's probably the fact here. So when my brother says, I don't need this evidence to win these cases, in my opinion, but I need them so I can present all the evidence. I've been trying cases long enough to know, and so has he. That's not what he's really after. Yeah, I'm trying to use too. But same thing, I was just wondering, where do you see the burden here? is on the prosecution? The burden on the, under 17C is clearly on the prosecution, and the burden is clearly on the prosecution on every other aspect. Right. Now, how much is enough for our phrase you've been kicking around, prima facie? Well, I suggest whatever was considered by this court in Reynolds to be enough is more than enough in this case. We have the testimony of every in individual involved, a number of them have pled guilty. Dean has pled guilty. Colson has pled guilty. Uh, Kalmbach has pled guilty, et cetera, et cetera. All under plea bargains where they are under obligation to fully cooperate. This prosecutor is not, nor does he say at any point that he needs this information to prosecute successfully these cases. Just to pinpoint uh, another issue, let's assume for the moment that we didn't agree with you on your test of privilege, and let's just assume that the only issue that was left in the case was the 17C issue. Now, uh, uh, then the, the president wins, in my view. Well, because? Because the prosecutor cannot show that the evidence he seeks is relevant and admissible. 
Because of the nature of the circumstance, he doesn't know what's in there. Well, uh, I suppose there are two parts to the question. One, how much of a showing does he have to make as to what's on, what might be on the tape? And secondly, uh, if that matter that he claims is on the tape is on the tape, is that relevant and admissible uh, under 17C? We'd have to know what the matter was, what the issues well, in the case were. But under Bowman and Iosa, it's not enough to show that it probably is or might be or is likely to be. It must be shown to be relevant and must be shown to be admissible. But Mr. That's Mr. why Sinclair, it's not a third party. Uh, Mr. Sinclair, uh, uh, you can't put an impossible task on someone who wants a subpoena against a third, against a third party witness uh, or against anybody else as to showing what is precisely on, uh, in some documents, I would suppose. Well, uh, uh, he, if you uh, want to utilize the 17C, then I suggest never, that's what you have to do. He's never listened. He's never listened to the tapes. He uh, doesn't know precisely what's on them. You would say that he could never subpoena a tape unless he had already gotten it. As a prosecutor, that's right. Well, As a grand jury, that's another matter. If he had brought the sought these under a grand jury subpoena, we would then be directly faced with Nixon against Sirica, which we happen to think was improperly and uh, incorrectly decided. But under 17C, we're dealing with a prosecutor's subpoena. The evidence of the decided cases make it quite clear there must be a specific showing of relevance and admissibility. Now, if he can't do it because of the nature well, of the matter, then that is, that's, that's his problem, not mine. The cases you're talking about are cases where, uh, where a defendant sought uh, discovery of evidence from the... Uh, or, or sought uh, material in a prosecutor's file. Most of those cases are, but there is at least one case, I think it's Grossman, that says the rules are equally applicable to the prosecution, decided in one of the footnotes in our brief. But a 17C subpoena is uh, conceptually a subpoena for known information. Conceptually, if the prosecutor is looking for things, he should utilize a grand jury subpoena. In that case, I think in Bowman, they, they wanted the... Uh, prosecutor to produce each document he was going to use in the presentation of his case. That's specific. It's obviously relevant and admissible. So uh, once he gets through with the grand jury, he, can't, he shouldn't be using a subpoena to develop his case. That's correct. And certainly not under these circumstances. Do you think that's the practice in the... I think it is the practice. I think that the grand jury practice is, is far, uh, far greater than perhaps the Constitution has envisioned. Yes, it's really think... used today, frankly as a effective uh, discovery tool. May I get back to what seems rather fundamental to me? Let us assume that it had been established that the conversations we're talking about here today did involve a criminal conspiracy. Would you still be asserting an absolute privilege? Yes, quite clearly. And Under the analogy with Gravel that I made. Right, and as I understand it, the public interest behind that privilege is the preservation of candor in discussions between the president and his closest aide. Quite clearly so. The re simple reason, right. sir. May I, may I follow I'm that sorry. up? I'm sorry. What public interest is there in preserving secrecy with respect to a criminal conspiracy? The answer, sir, is a criminal conspiracy is criminal only after it's proven to be criminal. My, and my, we're not at that point yet. My, my uh, question was based on the assumption that it had been established 
that the conversations did relate to a criminal conspiracy. That is, the case has been tried and the defense no, found guilty? No, well, it could have been established in various ways. As you've just said, a number of people have already confessed, and these people were participants in some of these conversations. But the fact that one defendant confessed does not make the other defendant guilty. Of course. But anyway, your answer is that uh, you would still... First of all, the answer is yes, even if it is criminal, but more importantly, it is yes, because criminality is something that is not necessarily determined at the time that you must, must resolve the issue, and that you should not destroy the privilege in the anticipation of a later finding of criminality, which may never come to pass. It is quite conceivable that a number of these defendants will be found innocent. And in fact, in theory, they are innocent right now. What is the public interest in keeping that secret? To avail the president, if your honor please, of a free and untrammeled source of information and advice without the thought or fear that it may be reviewed at some later time when some grand jury, in this case, or some other reason, suggests there is criminality. For example, but it's very did, important. I'm sorry. You did release him for the grand jury in this case. Yes, in the president's discretion, he did that. And it's a discretionary matter. But for example, the simple matter of appointments, if I may, an appointment of a judge. It's very important to the judiciary to have good judges. It's not at all unheard of for lawyers to be asked their opinion about a nominee. Now, if that lawyer wants to be sure that he's going to be protected in giving candid opinions regarding a nominee for the bench, it's absolutely essential that that be protected. Otherwise, you're not going to get candid advice. Now, this isn't a state secret. It isn't national defense. I suggest it's more important, because that judge may sit on that bench for 30 years. Well, don't you think it would be important if the judge in the... The president was discussing how they were going to uh, make appointments for money. I'm sorry, sir. I didn't understand your question. Don't you think it would be important in a hypothetical case if the about-to-be-appointed judge was making a deal with the president for money? Absolutely. But under yours, it couldn't be. In public interest, you couldn't release that. Uh, I would think that that could not be released if it were a confidential communication. If the president did appoint such an individual, the remedy is clear. The remedy is he should be impeached. Let me give you... Well, how are you going to impeach him if you don't know about it? Well, if you know about it, then you, you can state the case. If you don't know so about it, you, you never are. have it. You're on the prongs of a dilemma, huh? No, I don't think so. If you know the president's doing something wrong, you can impeach him. But the only way you can find out is this way. You can't impeach him, so you don't impeach him. You lose in some place wrong. This is, I think, what was suggested in the uh, Seaborg case, where the court said, well, gee, if that's so, uh, then uh, fraud could be all, all covered over and so forth. Uh, uh, human experience has not demonstrated that that's a fact. Very few things forever are, are hidden. Secondly, however, this case is not that case. As I pointed out, there is a plethora of information. This is not a case where there is no information. If anything, there is more than enough. What you're telling us also could be argued the other way, that there's been a waiver, and neither, neither 
That is suggested by my brothers. My brothers suggest a waiver, but this privilege is not like Fifth Amendment privilege or attorney-client privilege, where if you let out one word, you've lost the whole thing. That would defeat the purpose of it. As we point out in our brief, public policy requires as much publicity as the president in his discretion determines would be appropriate, and the more information, the better. And if you require, if you rule that one utterance constitutes a waiver, you're not going to get it. You're not going to have that, that thing. This is a discretionary privilege that the Constitution, by implication of necessity, and history has shown, is inherent in the executive function, as indeed it is in other functions. We, uh, we've cited in our brief similar examples of the legislature insisting upon such a privilege, even against subpoenas from courts, executive and the courts themselves. Mr. Sinclair, you're cutting into your... I know I am. I do appreciate being reminded of that, and I think I would preserve it, which I think is 10 more minutes left. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.